pray together about our awesome God. And we have joined in song about our awesome God. And now we open his word because he is truly an awesome God. That we serve, that we have the privilege to call our Father, and that we have the honor to be in his presence tonight and each day that we live in service to him. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter chapter 1 where we're going to read a couple of verses here in just a second or two from the first chapter of 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. Appreciate again so very much as Brother John talked about those who are here tonight who are visiting and those who are watching from home, those in the parking lot. Everyone is equally valuable. We are all in this thing together called life, trying to serve our God and rely on him. And we can rely on God because the promises that God makes are the promises that God keeps. And there are things that we can count on that God puts in his word that have always come true. And we could take an entire lesson or a series of lessons and just talk about promises kept by God in the past. But I want to talk about how God keeps his promises both now and in the future as we study together tonight. Appreciate the good songs that we've been able to sing. Sweet are the promises, kind is the word. Indeed, these promises of God are sweet. I appreciate each of you being here tonight. When we think about promises, promises are things that someone has said or written maybe in some sort of contractual form wherein there is a reliance on the person who's making the promise. In many ways, a promise and trust go hand in hand together. That if someone is making a promise to you, you are trusting that they're going to keep that promise. I was getting my hair cut a few days ago, and I noticed that on the wall was a license that was given by the state of Tennessee to the person who was cutting my hair, and I took that as a promise that this person knows what he or she is doing with scissors, not to mess up this beautiful face, and the fact is, is they, I guess, did okay. I haven't had any complaints from anyone about the haircut that was rendered a week ago, but the fact is, is I trusted that person with scissors not to do me harm and not to just be silly with the way that they were cutting my hair. We trust a pilot when we are on an airplane. We trust our police officers. We trust a lot of people who have made promises, even some of whom have sworn oaths to do a particular job in a particular or honorable way. And the same is true with our God who has made to us a series of promises that are to be counted on both now and forever. Christianity is all about promises. Look, if you would, at the first four verses, and you know the text, you know particularly verse four, but I want to read the first three verses and then the fourth verse, where Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith, that's where that phrase comes from, that we use so frequently, and rightly so, the like precious faith, or the faith of the same value, by which the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. 
as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. And then verse 4, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. That's plural, and there's adjectives before it. Great and precious promises, that through these promises you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So Christianity, everything that we're doing is all about God making promises and assurances to us such that we can trust our Lord. We sometimes sing a song, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. The fact is, is if you go back just a couple of pages in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8, Christianity is absolutely established on the concept of promises that were made by God. Now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he also, Jesus, is the mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. The history of God in Scripture is a history of promises made and promises that are kept. I was thinking about this when I was preparing this sermon of the first promises that were made by God, and probably the one that comes to mind the, the most frequently, and even that our young children would be able to talk about, would go back to Genesis chapters 6, 7, and 8, the idea of there no longer being a worldwide deluge and a rainbow being put into the cloud as a promise of God. But I thought, actually, there's a promise that transpires before Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8, and it goes back to Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, God makes a promise. He says, you can eat anything you want in the garden, but there's one thing you can't eat. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of that tree in the midst of the garden, you shall not consume it. You shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat it, what? You will surely die. We all know the answer. That was a promise. And sure enough, Genesis 3 rolls around in the first four to five verses. Adam and Eve both sinned by listening to the serpent who tempted them in the garden. And what happened? They died. Now you can say, wait a minute, they didn't die. They lived for a long time. They lived for 900 some years and had lots of children as recorded in Genesis chapter 5. But of course, that separation from God, that spiritual death, that figurative death is much more important than physical death. And we know that Romans chapter 6, verse 23, as was talked about Wednesday evening in the invitation talk, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The fact is, is that God always keeps his promises for us. And so if we were to go and look at hundreds of promises made by God, we would find that hundreds of promises will be kept by God. But I want to just talk about four tonight. Number one, sometimes we underestimate the importance of prayer. And I'm the first one that ever that would admit that sometimes I underestimate the power of prayer. We get so caught up in our lives. We get so caught up in thinking about that we control what goes on around us that we forget to go to God and say, God, can you help with this? Because God answers prayer. There is never a time, we'll put an asterisk next to that, come back to that here in just a second. There's never a time where God is not going to answer our prayer. Jesus teaches that if we pray with faith, 
that we will be heard by God. Matthew chapter 21 is where we find that taught by the Savior in verse 21 of the chapter. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, making reference to the tree that withered in the previous two or three verses. He says, But also if you say to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, it'll be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, comma, believing, comma, you will receive. This is one of those passages that individuals who may not be real familiar with the Bible or New Testament teachings might say, wait a minute, that's not really true. Because I ask God all kinds of things, and I believe that it may happen, but they don't come true. That's not exactly what Jesus is teaching here, is it? But he is teaching that there is a combination between faith or trust and the promises that God keeps to us. We, as being Christians, are provided full access to the king that counsels peace, as David talked so nicely about this morning. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18, a, a verse that is likely familiar to many of you, he says, For through him, speaking of the Christ, we have both access by one spirit to the Father. And so I'm guilty of it. I assume that you are guilty of it from time to time as well, but saying, Dear Heavenly Father, I'm having a difficult day. Can you please help me with this? Without ever really pausing to think about those first few words, Our Heavenly Father, I have access to the Father in heaven. I have full, unfettered access to Him to be able to talk to Him about the things that are on my mind, the things that are of concern to me. And we are to, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, pray confidently. To God, not pompously, not arrogantly, but confidently with boldness. In chapter 4 and verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we pray to God, it's not a matter of God, as someone was telling me a few weeks ago in the story, God, if you happen to be there, and God, if you happen to be real, and God, if you happen to hear me, please grant me this. So there's the asterisk, right? God's not going to hear a prayer of such pitiful nature, because that's not really praying. That's just whimsical thinking. But when we pray to God, we do so with boldness and confidence. And we also need to appreciate that our prayers are not ritualistic or rote, as is talked about in the great Sermon on the Mountaintop. But instead, they are to be sincere and they are to be effective. James writes about that in James chapter 5. And in verse 15, he says, the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. By the way, that will there is different than might, correct? And that's assurance, that's trust, that's a promise that God has made. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails or helps much. So God answers prayer. We need to make sure that we take that to the bank and remember that. 
And when we pray, make sure that we're doing so in bold, dramatic fashion before our wonderful God. We need to also appreciate that God grants a way of escape. God allows us to be tempted. And I underline the word allows because let no man say that when he is tempted, he is tempted by God, James tells us. But God always provides the ability to escape all temptation. You know the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And this is one of those passages that should be, and the key word is should be, instrumental in helping each of us to be faithful to God and reminding us of a God that cares for us. He starts in verse 12 by saying, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So don't be overconfident in your life. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. There is never a time wherein I sin and then I can go to God and say, God, you just made it too hard for me. You made it too difficult. You made it impossible for me to get out of that temptation. That is false. We know that. And we know that in verse 13 that Paul is speaking to a group of people who really understand the nature of sin because they're living in it on so many different accounts as we've talked about in our recent studies of 1 Corinthians. The fact is, is temptations are common. Hebrews chapter 4 where we read just a moment or so ago, seems to highlight that point in verse 15 that we read, where it says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So in every way that we could be tempted, and I think this is really fundamental, and something that I remember hearing years ago, there is no temptation to do wrong that is unique to this period of time that wasn't present in previous years, decades, centuries. Another way of putting that is you may say, you know what, I'm really struggling with X, whatever X is. And I bet no one else in the world has ever struggled with that. Someone has. Somewhere in the course of the billions or however many multiple people have lived on the earth, someone has struggled in the way that you are struggling. It may not make it easier, but it might make it easier. It may not make it palatable, but it will make it so that you realize, you know what, someone else has endured this before, I can endure it just as much. And when we think about our God who grants this way of escape, we can appreciate that God is faithful and that we can depend on him. Look at two passages where Paul writes to the church at Corinth in his first recorded letter and then in his second recorded letter. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 19, he says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I'm sorry, verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. God is faithful. Your best friend is typically faithful. Your spouse is faithful. Your children are faithful. Your co-workers may be faithful. But no one is as faithful as God 
because no one keeps promises like God. Think about that. And we are filled with a group of great people tonight who are watching from home, who are, who are here on, on, in this particular building or in the parking lot. We keep our promises. We don't renege on our word. We don't uh, say something and then do something else. We try to be faithful, but we are not as perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect because God is faithful. Early in his introduction in his subsequent letter in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians and verse 18, but as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and not no. And our brother David did a good job of outlining the context of chapter 1 just a few weeks ago in his study of 2 Corinthians. The fact is, if we resist the power of, de of the devil, of Satan himself, God guarantees that he will flee. Resist the devil and what? He will flee from you. And we've all seen that happen. I think we are all guilty of giving in to Satan in the way that we act, the way that we think, the way that we talk, the way that we treat someone, the way that we do something that is sinful or wrong. And we've all had those successes. And when you have those successes, you're like, wow, James 4, 7 really does work. I resisted him and he fled from me. It does work because God keeps his promises and grants a way of escape. Thirdly, the world will end and Jesus Christ will return and the earth will be destroyed. The world will end through a complete and fiery destruction. Second Peter chapter 3 talks about this in Peter's letter to these Christians in the, in the first century. And he says, a day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And then he says in verse 12, we are looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat is the question that he's asking in rhetorical fashion. Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 24, we won't take the time to go over and read that, but promises his return. In fact, in John chapter 14, he says much the same thing, where he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I am coming back for you. Now, the fact is, is something that I remember learning as a very young boy, and we need to make sure that we are reminded of it today, is that the return date is unknown to us and unknown even to him. Matthew 24, verse 36, the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father knows the date. And I've never been able to figure out why it is that people are in the business of trying to predict the end of the world and the return of Christ when it is explicitly stated here in Matthew chapter 24, and verse 36, that no one knows, not even the Lord Jesus himself. That date is unknown even to him. And as we said both in the account of 2 Peter chapter 3, Paul uses the same analogy or the same picture in his letter to the church at Thessalonica when he says that the return of Jesus Christ will be like a thief in the night. Read with me, if you would, very briefly before we go to our fourth and our final observation about promises of God, where Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, and he says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes, as a thief in the night. Verse 3, 
For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. In my Bible, the word day there is capitalized. It's got a big D because it's a big deal. That day is a big day. You want to think about big days? You get your first job. Maybe the day you get engaged. Maybe the day you get married. Certainly the most important day of anyone's life is the day that they commit themselves to being a Christian baptism. But the day, the day is the day that we are waiting for and the day that we are preparing for because God has promised it's coming. And one of the things that was really frustrating for these early Christians is they're thinking, we've been around for 25 years. What's the holdup? He says, you got to understand that as the one day becomes a thousand years and a thousand years becomes one day in the mind and in the mindset of God, that you cannot measure time by our standard, but rather by the Lord's standard. Christ will return. This word will come to an end. We will stand before God on the day, big D, of judgment, and we will give an answer. And someone would say, well, that's frightening to think about. Well, as we've talked about before, it is indeed a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And I think a healthy dose of fear is right to think about standing before God, certainly if we are unprepared. And that brings us to our fourth and our final observation, the fourth promise, and that is heaven is an everlasting, eternal home. God wants heaven to be the home, not just for some people, but for all people. In 2 Peter chapter 3, in verse 9, Peter talks about this in beautiful language. And he says, the Lord is not slack concerning what? His promise. As some count slackness. So he doesn't make a promise and then forget what he has said. But is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. God wants all people to be saved. He wants even the finest person that we know to be saved. He wants the most rottenest person that you've ever met to be saved. That's the love that our God has for us. For Christ died for us, not while we were his friends, but Romans chapter 5, while we were his enemies. That's the nature of the God that we serve. The fact is, though, and this is very controversial, what I'm about to say, not controversial to the majority of those who are listening, but there may be some who are listening. There may be some who see this sermon uh, down the road on our website or some who hear this statement being made and say, well, wait a minute, who are you to be judgmental? Going back to two weeks ago in one of the sermons that I presented, but not everyone is going to go to heaven. If you read the obituaries, either online or in a newspaper, you're going to think that everybody who ever dies, that they're all going to heaven because everyone's a great person. They were giving, they were gracious, they were kind, so they must be going to heaven. And we don't like the idea of not everyone going, not everyone not going to heaven. But look, if you would, at two passages, both in Matthew's account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, 
For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Some of you may have the word confined instead of the word difficult. The idea of it being a very narrow, confined, and difficult path to get to heaven. In fact, in verse 21 of the same chapter, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, that professes some level of religious devotion. Not everyone who expresses religious devotion will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who actually does the will of my Father in heaven. There's another controversial thing, the idea of doing something in order to be pleasing to God. And then jump over to the latter uh, couple of chapters, last couple chapters of Matthew, and chapter 25, we won't read 31 through 41, but verse 41 ends with this kind of uh, climactic statement. He will say to those on the left hand, those who did not serve, those who did not sacrifice, those who did not do what the Lord had asked, depart from me, verse 41, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. More on that in just a second as we draw to a close. The fact is, is Jesus, as we referenced in John chapter 14, is promising and has promised to work on a home that is prepared for those who are prepared. Now, our preparations won't be enough. Indeed, it will be God's grace that will save us in addition to our faithfulness to him. But Jesus has promised he's working to prepare a place for those who are prepared. And as we read in Revelation chapter 21, we draw to a close in Revelation 21, as our good brother did a nice job of reading those verses. Heaven isn't described as a fairy tale kind of place in the Bible. It is described as a real place where real people live and where the real God reigns. And I, there's so many different things about Revelation 21, 23 through 27 that I like, but that would be another sermon for another time. But one thing that I really like about the text is where it says, I saw no temple in it. No temple in heaven. I said, wait a minute. I would think that if there's ever going to be a temple anywhere, it's going to be in heaven. Well, kind of a trick question, is there a temple in heaven? Yes and no, depending on what you mean by the temple, right? says, in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There's no need for a temple because God is there in a way that is manifested greater than in anything on earth. No great Gothic cathedral, no church building, how beautiful it may be, how historic it may be, can compare with the beauty of the temple, which is God himself, God Almighty and the Lamb. They are the temple that is there. You know, what we need to appreciate is that heaven is our eternal home. And I could make a fifth point, but I didn't for the sake of time. And, but I'll just briefly tagline it here. That there's a fifth promise. And that is hell is real. Just as much as heaven is the assurance for those who are faithful, hell is the place that we read just a few moments ago in Matthew chapter 7. That is everlasting fire. You know, if you do a poll, and you can do this, you can Google this, uh, polling about who believes in heaven, who believes in hell. Uh, if you poll the 330-some million Americans that the vast majority believe in heaven, 
somewhere between 70 and 90% believe in heaven, believe there's a heaven. So you would think that there were 70 to 90% that believe in hell, except there's less than half that, that believe in hell. So we believe that God will render judgment in a favorable way to go to heaven, but there's no punishment. The whole idea of annihilationism is a fancy word that you'll just cease to exist or that everyone's going to go to heaven. We know that that's not the case. We know that Jesus actually talks more often about hell and its fire and its punishment than he seems to talk about heaven and the promises that are made therein. The fact is, is we are looking for that real and that great place that is described in Revelation 21 and other places because the promises of God are promises that are kept. There's not a single promise that God has ever failed to keep. And there will never be a promise that he fails to keep going forward. And these are things that we can rely on. I, I remember early on in my Christian life that I kind of followed the path of a child, which is it seems the way that it's supposed to work in that when you are a young child, the reason that you often obey your parents is because you're afraid of the consequences for having done wrong in front of your parents' sight. You're afraid of whatever punishment or consequence comes your way. But as you get a little bit older, you obey your parents and honor them because you love them, because you respect them, and because you can't imagine a life without them. Well... I'm at a place in my Christian life now where I still fear hell. But that's not necessarily the primary motivator of who I am or what I am. Because now I've gotten to a place where I respect the Father. But I'm still, I confess, scared of hell. And if someone ever asks, what's your greatest fear? It's not earthquakes, it's not fires, it's not tornadoes. It's not water damage from leaky pipes. It's hell. That's the real fear. Because hell is real and hell is a long time. And if that motivates you this evening, we're glad that it does. Let it also be the fact that heaven should motivate you. Because God says, I've got a place prepared for you. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be wonderful. And we get to spend our eternity. If we can help you tonight to come to a greater knowledge of God and the promises that he's made and the promises that he's kept and the promises that he will keep, we welcome that opportunity for you to be baptized, to have your sins washed away, or to confess your sins in front of brothers and sisters who care about you. We won't poke fun at you. We can poke in front of ourselves. But we'll be there to stand with you help you and to encourage you and to pray with you. And if we can help you in any way, let us know. While together we stand, while we sing.